Do you want to start a thriving real estate career, but don't know where and how to start? Do you want to become a successful realtor or investor, but lack the required knowledge and skills? Gear yourself up with the best and actionable advice here on The Real Estate Rundown. Tune in as Shannon Robnett talks with industry veterans about all kinds of asset classes, market trends, challenges, management techniques, and success stories. Listen to informative discussions with valuable tips that will serve as the foundation for your incredible real estate venture. Now, here's your host, Shannon Robnett. Hey guys, welcome back to the Real Estate Rundown. Listen, you're going to want to tune into our next episode where we use uh, Neil Walgreen as our guinea pig. Why a guinea pig? Because it's not all the time that you get to use somebody who used to be in the Air Force and fly C-130s that's now in the real estate world as somebody you can throw questions at and get him to answer them. Guys, we're going to find out what 100 countries, Neil Walgreen, C-131s, and triple net investments have in common. So you're going to want to tune into the Real Estate Rundown and see what that's all about. Hey guys, welcome to the Real Estate Rundown. Thanks for tuning in. Guys, you are in for a treat today. I've got a good friend of mine, Neil Walgreen on the show. Neil, say hi. Hey, how's it going? So Neil is a fellow pilot, right? Neil, you were just out flying this morning? Yeah, actually, I just got my mountain check out, flying up to Tahoe. Nice, nice. So I just went flying in the mountains as well. That's uh, something we share in common. Neil, you started out in the Air Force. You went to over 100 countries. You're now in commercial real estate. Take us through that journey. Help us understand what your background is that qualifies you or how ordinary people can do what you do, how you got to where you're at and what you're doing. Yeah, no, it's a great question. Uh, I've always thought that I find the backstory on how people kind of stumbled into real estate, especially commercial real estate, kind of interesting because I feel, at least from my personal experience, very few people go directly into it, say, out of high school. You know, most people pursue maybe a tangential or a totally different path before they end up in that real estate journey. But mine was, you know, really, uh, I would say unrelated at first. You know, I was uh, grew up in the San Francisco Bay Area, very much suburbia, consistent, safe, predictable. And, you know, I was 18 and wanted the polar opposite. So I <laughs> decided to uh, go to the Air Force Academy, uh, ended up getting a pilot slot, worked through a couple of years flight school and ended up flying the, the C-130 Hercules. So I got to do that for, I guess, almost 10 years with the Air Force and then for a few additional years with the Navy Reserve. Got to take it all over the world. I mean, over 100 countries, like you mentioned, and two combat deployments, Iraq, Afghanistan. I lived in Tokyo for four years. Really just a, a great way to kind of experience the world and you know, kind of transition from a boy to a man, if you will. You know, and it's funny because I wanted to go into the Air Force also right out of high school. They looked at my grades and said, well, maybe real estate is for you. <laughs> I got the do not pass, go to uh, do not see the world, do not get your own airplane, you know, get out of here. But, you know, what did the military teach you about business? Yeah, and I honestly, I would say two main pieces, and this might even be more specific to the flying world. Um, but you can really, you can apply it to a lot of kind of operational fields, which you see a, a lot of in the military. And that's checklist discipline and also operational risk assessment. So, you know, we'll talk about the first one. Flying is very complex machine that's been, you know, refined over the years, ever since the Wright brothers put their first contraption in the air. 
most aircraft really are just iterative improvements. And, you know, there's not a lot of huge groundbreaking changes. It's just, you know, small incremental pieces that make them better, faster, lighter, stronger, et cetera. And really, I mean, you can attest to this, that checklist discipline of getting, hey, here's a sequence of events that works. And this is, you know, really a, a culmination of, you know, tons and tons, decades sometimes of people that have tried different routes and, you know, ultimately kind of settled into this is truly the best way to, to start a plane, to take off, to do airdrop, to do short field landings, to do all these pieces and, you know, to adhere to this checklist that's proven and really refined over time, I found that piece is, is hugely, you know, kind of transferable to the real estate world, you know, with what we're doing, everything from tackling a project, from acquisitions to, you know, placing debt, especially, you know, my focus is more on the capital raising side. I mean, just the consistency and the process and the methodology of that, I find has a, a huge amount of parallels with the flying world. You know, and that's true. The one thing that you... The other thing that I would see that I love about being in the air is that in the real estate world, it really is three-dimensional. You can go up, down, or sideways, and you can't do that with a car, right? That's very true. Backwards, you can go right and left, but you can't go up or down. And sideways without your turn signal, (laughs) we all know that person, right? But you know, it's funny because the other thing that I love about flying is when I've had a terrible day at the office, I can go get in the plane. I can shut everything off and it's just enough that it takes my mind right out of my problems and right back to the and I can see everything clearly. And it's funny how often I solve my problems in the plane. (laughs) I agree. And, you know, I love taking friends up, but there's something kind of magical about just being up by yourself, just just with you and your thoughts and your noise canceling headset. (laughs) You can get some heavy thinking going on. The best things that's ever happened. (laughs) I know that Orville and Wilbur would have gotten one if they if they didn't know. Oh, it. hands down, right? <laughs> so, Neil, you did your stint in the Air Force. You went to the Navy. Thank you for your service. We appreciate it. We need more people like that that are willing to take on combat for our nation. Where did that leave you? You're out of the military. All the excitement's gone. <laughs> What's next for Neil? Yeah, uh, you know, I, I hit a, I would say, a, a kind of inflection point in my flying career with the military where I kind of saw, all right, I either stay in and, you know, continue and maybe fly a little less and, you know, keep going to the same places and take more admin jobs. And, you know, it just, it, it would have been okay, but it didn't, you know, to quote Marie Kondo, it didn't spark joy. Right. And (laughs) I love that phrase that I probably overuse it, but, you know, I think there's, you know, if what you're doing is not sparking joy, making you genuinely happy. I mean, pivot, do something else, find something new. And, you know, that really is, is what I did. And so I kind of went back to the drawing board and said, all right, well, we could go fly commercial. That was kind of the same, same boat, you know, flying for. That would, I mean, you know, Cincinnati to Cleveland twice a day. Oh man. <laughs> I, it's just, it's depressing even thinking about it for me, but you know, no uh, slide against my plenty of ex-military friends who are now in the commercial world, but you know, just, it's uh, certainly not a career field for everyone. And, you know, for me, I needed maybe something that, you know, where your upward mobility is more tied to your, you know, your skills and energy and competency as opposed to seniority and when you got hired. So I think that was you know, one of the big shifts there. So I kind of did what anyone does when they're, you know, not happy with the world that they're in, you do the polar opposite again. So I went from big, you know, kind of bureaucratic, big military to a small startup in Southern California. And we, uh, it was neat. It was a, a renewable energies company. 
Uh, I was employee number 40, I believe. And we, the company had a technology effectively of taking waste wood feedstocks, like forest residues, woody type of materials, uh, cooking it in a technology called pyrolysis, similar to how you make activated carbon, but different set of parameters. And they could actually extract hydrocarbon rich vapors that went on to become the aromatic portion of gasoline. And I, then I have transported into an episode of Breaking Bad. <laughs> and then you cook it, add some blue food coloring, and then <laughs> you got yourself a TV deal. So. Uh, <laughs> uh, but no, it was fun. And, and uh, the other side of the technology was this kind of black granulated material called biochar. And really, I mean, these guys, they knew it was effective for enhancing soil, improving growth, you know, just a number of soil benefits. But there wasn't really a market for this particular, you know, asset class in the in the soil world, I guess you could say. So I got to run business development and, you know, we were bringing it to market at retail channels with horticulturists, with, you know, UC Davis and big research grants. And uh, it was it was really pretty fun. You know, ultimately, the economics of the company didn't quite shake out and the company ended up going under a few years later. But it was really, I think it, you know, really planted the seeds for me of this kind of, you know, startup entrepreneurial, you know, your net worth can be associated with the, you know, amount of risk and the amount of time and effort you put into kind of a new field. And that, I mean, that really resonated with me. And, uh, you know, ultimately, when that company, you know, started to wind down, I had an opportunity to move up to the Bay Area, moved to San Francisco, ended up getting connected with the husband of a, a family friend of our family who had a company somewhat established uh, raising equity for real estate deals. And, you know, I think a mixture of, you know, kind of the, the idea behind it is numbers-based, quantitative, you know, something, you know, the underwriting wasn't too crazy. And, you know, the personal connection, there was an opportunity to come join the team. And that ultimately somewhat by chance, but, you know, the timing lined up for me to make that transition over to the real estate side. This is about seven years ago. So, Again, process has played a part because you're taking a product, you're turning it into something, you're marketing it, you're doing all aspects of that. So again, processes take a part. Now you're with a capital raising outfit that's doing real estate stuff, or you're the capital raising part of that. Is that what I understood? We, that particular company was strictly capital raising. And what they would do, their business model was to partner with operators or developers who had, you know, a skill set putting together a deal lacked access to their own capital or their own investor pool. So we would effectively be the equity arm as a JV partner through the life of that deal. Awesome. And so how long were you there? I mean, you walk in the front door knowing how to make biochar, <laughs> how to plug one of the largest hauling <laughs> tanks and all kinds of stuff straight into the real estate grind, right? How long were you there? Yeah, so I spent, uh, I guess, just a little over four years there. And, you know, ultimately, I got my MBA and I, the quantitative side of things has always been, you know, somewhat, somewhat easy for me. So I think that probably helped in kind of understanding, you know, both, hey, here's a new concept, but really, it's just it's inputs, outputs, right? You know, you have your inputs or rents, your outputs are expenses and your debt service and your, your distributions to your investors. And, you know, being able to shake that out and understand the value behind it, um, really, you know, not so different from, you know, a lot of other fields just structured in a different way. And for those of you that didn't know, Neil had his MBA, he used the word quantitative. 
Now we know. Neil's got to- <laughs> oh man, no, I busted here. No, no, no cuz that might never you say that cuz I, I, I have an MBA, right? But, but you know, so now you're again, your checklist, your processes, right? So we can see how that's creating out of the military, you've been able to create the same processes with whatever it is you're using that make that something that you can walk into something new, discern what's going on, make a checklist about it, run with somebody else's checklist, make it happen, and be able to successfully execute at any level. Where did you go with that company? I mean, you went from basic knowledge of real estate. Did you, I mean, I didn't hear any conversations about real estate knowledge prior. Are we missing where Neil learned a lot about real estate and then became a fundraiser? Did Neil go from not a lot of understanding about real estate to fundraiser, learned on the job, put it all together in four short years? Yeah, no, I mean, I I had some personal interest in my previous firm, but really it was just, you know, some, I would say something that I always knew I wanted to get into at some point. It wasn't like a you know, a burning passion at the time. And then, um, you know, when this opportunity came up, it really was kind of the catalytic moment to say, hey, I need to learn every single thing I can about this. So, I mean, really it was, you know, everything from meetup groups to, you know, webinars, a ton of reading. And what was useful, so I came in under an operations role where I was forming partnerships with other syndicators or other operators, you know, and really getting a look under the hood. And to me, that was hugely helpful to start from an underwriting piece and go, all right, how do we break this down? How do we dissect this? And how do we basically unwrap this deal to see, you know, is the sum of its parts better than what it looks like from the outside? Or does it get uglier as I dive in deep? And not only that, but to be able to do it with different asset classes. So we had partners, for example, that, you know, strictly did multifamily projects in Northeast Atlanta. We had someone else who did, you know, multi-tenant retail in the Dallas-Fort Worth area, another development group that did, uh, you know, senior assisted living in NorCal and getting to see all these different angles and, you know, work sponsor splits and work investor splits and, you know, see how do you create value? How do you align incentives? And you start seeing, you know, that you start seeing trends and it all kind of comes together at some point. And for me, that was about the two-year point. And that, at that side, the founder was taking kind of a backseat with some personal issues. And I ended up taking you know, a VP and eventually a president role of the company and, and running it. Nice. So you really did go from bottom to top in that organization. I mean, coming in as operations, that's pushing buttons and pulling levers. And now you're going, <laughs> and I mean, that's no small feat, Neil. And that's something to definitely be proud of. But that wasn't enough, was it? That wasn't, wasn't where the story ends, is it? Uh, it's not. And actually, to be clear, I don't know where the story ends yet. <laughs> but I can tell you where the story is right now. Uh, but one of the groups that I worked with that we raised some basically partnered as the equity arm in kind of early 2016, 2017 was Mag Capital. And, you know, the, the model was interesting. You know, the model effectively, you know, single tenant, net leased industrial, largely manufacturing companies. But before I jump into the model, what I found over time was, you know, as I kind of worked with all these different groups, was the correlation of successful projects to sponsor groups typically didn't have a lot in common with the deals, the individual deals. It had much, more, much, much, much higher correlation with the team, the quality of the team, the communication of the team. And really just, you know, it made me reevaluate how I look at you know, deals and that before I even looked under the hood, I started looking, you know, at the team first. 
And, you know, the team I really connected with at a high level, you know, is ran by some guys about my age, entrepreneurial. And really, I felt like they had taken some risks in that they wanted to really not follow the herd, but carve out their own model in a field that, you know, really not many people who, you know, bring in private investors are doing. To my knowledge, I mean, they're probably one of no more than three people that are effectively syndicating single tenant net lease industrial through sale leaseback. Um, and that really is our bread and butter you know, model. And it's fun being, you know, kind of a, one of few players in a, you know, big, uh, a real estate world, I guess you could say. And, you know, it's been fun kind of carving out our, you know, our model and our, our brand within that. So question, Neil, everybody in America's programmed to own, right? I mean, from, from the time we're little, we own, those are my toys and you own your home and you, all of these things. Why would someone that's built a business sell the building. I mean, and because it's genius because you've got the person that loves it like their own, but they don't no longer own it. Why would mm-hmm. someone sell the business, the building that the business is in? Yeah. You know, it all comes down to, you know, before looking at the, all the moving pieces, it comes down to where is your money most effective? And to break down, what does a circumstance look like that makes a seller want to do a sale leaseback, right? So these are, these are typically tenured companies they're manufacturing, they're making car parts or frozen pies or, uh, you know, white label cosmetics, or, I mean, really it's just the gamut is, is endless, you know, and these guys, they typically have been family owned or kind of locally owned and grown in a very organic way, super low debt, just for that year over year, kind of three to 5% increase in sales and, you know, healthy EBITDA margins. And what'll typically happen is they've recently been acquired by private equity. And those private equity groups, they are geared toward rapid hockey stick shaped growth. And the way they do that is they look at all these different ways they can have capital tied up and they go, where is my capital best used? You know, am I making the best use of my capital owning real estate if I'm a private equity firm? Or do I get a better overall return by extracting the capital tied up in this building, just kind of sitting there appreciating and redeploying that into my new portfolio company that I bought for a reason because I think I can take this thing to the moon. Uh, And that's really, that is the underlying reason. They are saying, hey, we can get a better internal ROI by basically putting this capital into this business and taking it out of the real estate. You know, and I remember talking with my carpet guy about wanting to build a building. He kept coming back and kept, and I just put it to him plainly. I said, are you getting the best, the best discount that the mill offers? Yeah really maximizing your price and terms on your product? Yeah. He said, no. And I said, well, then why do why? why wouldn't you want to do that? Well, because I want to own real estate. I said, but you're taking money out of your business. You're taking 20% down. You got a $2 yep. million business or building. You got to take 400 grand out of your business that you could be getting better price and terms through this to get more revenue coming in that your deal is about revenue. Your deal yep. is not about buying these things. And, and, you know, even with, you know, you, there's tons of examples of that, but th- that was one of the things that I put out there. I also really appreciate the fact, Neil, that you realize that we have a large Canadian audience and you've used the hockey stick. Uh, there. <laughs> we've, got, we've got illustration <laughs> friends that, uh, that attention, uh, hockey stick. Uh, but so now you're able to, you've got, you're working with these guys that are at Mag Capital and you're able to really revitalize the cash flow because everybody thought they had to own their business or they built a specialized building. Now they've got that building. But isn't that an interesting correlation? Because 
your value of your building is based on the rent that you're paying. And now as an owner, they're in a conundrum. That shows you how yeah. my level of education is <laughs> conundrum, right? But you're now sitting there setting the rent on your building that helps evaluate the price point of your building based on what you want to pay for it long-term. How do you guys deal with that as far as what real rents are, what assets are really worth, what rents yeah. are really worth, and what the buyout is? What, one thing I really like about this asset class, and this is kind of a roundabout way to answer your question, you know, compared to, let's say I'm buying a multifamily deal, right? I'm the buyer, you're the seller. You know, there's a lot of little things we can negotiate, but at the end of the day, it comes down to price, right? And either you're going to feel like you won or I'm going to feel like I won. You know, there's usually, it's hard to be truly win-win in that scenario, unless someone's a truly motivated seller. You know, one thing I like about the sale leaseback transaction is we really, we have two levers now. So we are negotiating price and we're negotiating rent like you spoke of. And there's a lot of different scenarios, right? So one seller might say, hey, we're looking to maximize the proceeds from the sale. We are looking to pay off debt. We're looking to reinvest in you know, new manufacturing lines, whatever it looks like. And they might say, hey, we want to sell kind of on the high end of the market. And we might turn around and say, okay, uh, in return, you're going to pay on the high end of the, the rent spectrum in return, right? Because we need that yield. Or we might have a buyer who says, you know what, like we're looking, you know, for modest proceeds, but we're looking for really low rent obligation down the road. And in that scenario, we can go to them and go, all right, we're going to sell on the low end of the spectrum and we'll lease it back at well below market. And that's actually our preferred strategy there. And that what's nice is you're able to work with the seller in a much more, I would say, uh, you know, in a fashion that aligns interests in a much more fluid way. And the fact that that seller stays with you because now he's your tenant or right. she's your tenant. And that, you know, kind of motivates people to play nice in the, in the process and not try to squeeze every last nickel out because you know what, when you're my tenant, if you were a jerk, when you were selling this deal, <laughs> next time you're asking for a favor, you know, I'm going to remember yeah. that. So, well, and you know, the other beauty of that is their triple net leases. So when the light bulb goes out, they're not calling you, right? When the, That's true. When the parking lot needs redone, they're not calling you. Restriping, you know, when you got a major snow event, they're not calling you. That's all still on them. So their facilities manager still stays busy, right? Yep. The only thing that changed is their cash flow got better because more than likely their rent went or their payment for their facility went down, right? Because they're not contributing interest or they're only paying, they're paying an interest payment, really. They're not paying a principal payment on top of that. And all of the real long-term obligations to go with that are not there. So when you see that you do this, what typically happens on your pro forma on these, when you're buying these as, as mag capital, are you guys, are you guys staying in them for 20 years? Are you guys looking at a three to five year horizon? What's your investment parameters on this and where are you trying to go with those? Yeah, no, great question. We feel we are building some value. You know, there's a lot of kind of small incremental ways to build value. We feel one of the you know most direct ways is putting a, a brand new long-term lease in place and being the first owner of that lease. So our, our usual terms, 15 to 20 years, we don't plan to hold that long. We usually hold about four to five years for kind of modest appreciation, consistent cash flow. And really, you know, we do a heavy credit look, and we can talk about that later, but we do a heavy credit look into the really the financial strength of that tenant company to pay their obligations to include rent. And the longer you hold that deal, the more uncertainties there are on where that credit picture goes. But you know, within about five years, typically you can know with a fairly high degree of certainty those obligations be met. And then we go and we sell that that same building 
still 15 years left a term on that lease and we're able to sell to the next buyer who still has a lot of cash flow to be had from that as well. That's a great model. So where are you sourcing these deals? I mean, what do you just run an ad on Craigslist? We'll buy buildings for cash. I mean, the, <laughs> you know, difficult when you're talking about the size and scope of the buildings that you're, that you guys are taking down, how are you sourcing these? Yeah, no, it's a great question. You know, it's a mix. There are some direct, you know, kind of private equity backed deal flow, but most of it's still done through, you know, kind of more traditional commercial broker relationships. So, you know, the amount of, I would say national scope, say a lease back experience brokers, it's probably, I mean, just a couple dozen max. So it's, it's a really, you know, kind of narrow subset skill, specialized skill that most commercial, you know, real estate brokers don't have, or just haven't done enough sale lease back to, you know, be the go-to representative for this transaction, just because, you know, like we said, it is a more complex transaction, but yeah, most sourcing, you know, we buy, we sell from the same small group of people. And, you know, one of our principals, actually both are commercial real estate brokers and most of the acquisition flow and selling flow goes through them. Yeah. You know, I see that as being a very niche business, but a very necessary business. So, so who are your investors? Yeah, we we have a mix. You know, it's high net worth, it's family office, it's you know some uh, well paid retail investors, and you know we get the right the right group in place to you know have reliable capital and be able to you know effectively close the investment in short timelines. And that's one of the ways we've been able to compete against larger you know REITs like say Store Capital or Stag Industrial, who are big publicly traded single tenant net lease uh, investment firms. You know, I think if I were the guy selling my business back, I'd want to work with a small, smaller outfit. I wouldn't want to just throw it in the machine of someone like that. Not that there's anything wrong with that. There's some people that like to be tossed into the machine, but, you know, just to know that you're dealing with a smaller operation would probably be better. What kind of uh, all of yours, 506Bs, 506Cs, you're dealing with accredited investors only. What are some of the requirements that people that want to get involved with you are going to have to have to be involved? Yeah. So our particular deals are direct investment, meaning it's not a fund. We set up a a specialized, special purpose LLC, takes ownership of each one. Ultimately, we do about nine to 10 projects a year uh, on average. And uh, the way we structure most of these is is 506B. So we have, you know, really kind of built a kind of loyal, reliable investment group. And that group is who we uh, include in these offerings and how we get funded. This is not an advertisement. So make us <laughs> what kind of returns your investors are getting so that those that are listening to this that are interested would kind of be able to bracket, you know, obviously every deal's different. We're not giving yeah. these here, but what is it that your investors usually get besides not having to deal with any of the headaches of ownership? Yeah, no, great question. You know, from a cash flow basis, and I'll compare this to say a more common take say multifamily, right? Multifamily, you tend to come in, you're buying an underperforming asset. You have a business plan in place. After you take ownership, you say we're gonna paint, we're gonna change cabinets and you know, flip countertops and all this stuff. We think we can improve rents, we think we can improve occupancy, but you know, there's execution risk there, right? We, on the other hand, it's more of a defensive play. You know, we're coming in. We have a 100% occupancy, fully occupied building. There's pre-negotiated rent bumps in the lease. So we know every year with a high degree of certainty that rent's going up, you know, and ultimately, so it's a offensive cash flow play first. And I, that cash flow typically from a cash on cash basis starts from day one and it's usually between, you know, seven and 12%. So that's mailbox money. 
I mean, that's the kind of stuff you can count on every month to pay your mortgage and your electric bill and, you know, your car payment and all your, your bills. I mean, that's not speculative money. And I, you know, I, I love a, a value add investor guy just as much as everybody. I'm in the development space, but, you know, even I look at value add as a little different, right? Because, because yeah. it is that you are taking my word for it. I am thinking that I can do this. Uh, even in the development space, the bank doesn't take my word for it. The investors don't take yeah. my word for it. We get appraisals. You're built in cash flow. You've got signed leases. You've got credit worthy tenant. I mean, all of those things are part of the pluses and minuses that make a great deal, right? I don't produce cash flow on day one. Value add. Yeah cash flow on day one. You produce cash flow on day one. So for that, this is what, so your investor profile is usually looking, they've made the pile of money they want. They're uh, not necessarily at the end of life's road. We don't want to use that. (laughs) They are looking to get to the point where they've got cash coming in instead of all their cash going out so they can live their life without that J-O-B chaining them down to something. And they're looking to, you know, fire up the motorhome and go see the world. I mean, not maybe, maybe not a hundred countries, but they'll try to get there, right, Neil? (laughs) hundred states. Wait. Yeah. They're a different profile, but they're looking for that security that says, yes, it's asset backed. Yes, it's backed by real estate. Yes, it's cash flow. And yes, it's backed by the balance sheet of a large company. Yeah, no, I absolutely. And the same way, I mean, just to use a, you know, a tradable markets comparison, you know, when you're young, you're probably going to have more stocks than bonds, right? And not to say you shouldn't have any bonds, but you know, and this is back in the day when bonds actually produced something. <laughs> uh, imagine that world. But, uh, you know, you would start on a riskier stock play and then slowly, you know, as you kind of approach that motorhome age, your portfolio would transition. And, you know, this really is, is no different. You know, when you're 30, you might have more, you know, big value add potential or development deals with a small, smaller amount of passive income. And then as you kind of grow, you know, you, I think there's a case to be made that, you know, you want to start adding on additional, you know, really reliable passive income. And these, for what it's worth, these have a, a profit split on the end. So, you know, all full cycle with appreciation, we've been able to return on deals we've bought, held and sold high teens in terms of average annual returns. So those are phenomenal. Oh, yeah. You're getting cash flow from day one. I mean, that, you know, there, and exactly like a friend of mine says, there's a button. For every seat, right? There's an investment for <laughs> one of those, and that's the thing that we try to do here at the at the Real Estate Rundown is just provide more information because mm-hmm. not everybody wants to be a wholesaler, right? Yeah. Not everybody wants to be a fix and flip guy. You know, I went all the way in on my first fix and flip. I bought a house for five thousand dollars. I moved it a mile down the road and put it on a basement, right? Mm-hmm. Needless to say, Neil, I only did one, right? <laughs> that's all it took. <laughs> but that there is an investment for everybody. So. With that being said, Neil, where can people find you and Mag Capital? Yeah, so we have a, a website with some general info. It's www.magcp, nice and easy to remember.com. And, uh, you know, personally, I, I love to hear feedback on the show, any questions, or if you're interested in talking more about joining the investment group, just drop me a line, either Neil, N E I L, like Neil Diamond at magcp.com. <laughs> or, uh, <laughs> you got that, that song stuck in my head again. Thanks, buddy. <laughs> exactly right. I mean, he's he's one of the greatest artists of our time, right? So, <laughs> gotta give Mr. Diamond a little love. But yeah, just drop me uh, an email there, and uh, I'm happy to discuss more. Awesome. Well, Neil, I appreciate you taking time out of your flying schedule and all that you're doing over <laughs> capital to sit by and talk with us. I really appreciate you giving that information to our listeners here on the Real Estate Rundown. We super appreciate it because we know that our job here at the Real Estate Rundown is to 
help investors understand what they want to do and then execute on that through education. And that's really what we're trying to do here is make a smarter investor so that we wind up with less sad stories and difficult situations that we're, you know, being the shoulder to cry on. So Neil, I really, really do appreciate you stopping by here on the Real Estate Rundown. Thanks for having me, Shannon. And guys, don't forget to follow us on the Real Estate Rundown. You can find us on YouTube or hit us on Spotify or iTunes where we are on the podcast list there. You can follow us there, follow us on Facebook, Twitter. We're in all the usual places, but, and you're going to find Neil's information below. It's going to be right here in the links. We really appreciate you guys stopping by the show and we can't wait for you to come by the next episode where we will talk more about real estate because that's what we do at the Real Estate Rundown. Thanks guys. We'll talk to you soon. That's a wrap for today's episode of The Real Estate Rundown. Let these newfound strategies pave the way to start a successful career or a profound rebranding. If you loved everything you have heard, listen to more conversations at www.shannonrobnett.com and be sure to leave a rating, share it with your friends, and subscribe. Until the next episode. Amen.